Humans are very social creatures who thrive in communities. Since time immemorial, we have used laws to help enforce the morals and mores of the day, especially those around sex and sexuality. Sex laws and the context in which they're written have the ability to foster an environment of either protection or discrimination in a community. From biblical law to Dickensian court reporting to Ireland's modern fight for equality and bodily autonomy, today on Our Sexual History we'll be looking at the ways humanity has progressed and in some ways regressed when it comes to legalities around sex. Today on Our Sexual History, we have Rory Trainer, barrister and host of the Brief Notes podcast on Dublin City FM. Welcome, Rory. Well, thank you very much for having me along, Shauna. So, what have you got for us today? You're going to talk to us about sexy sex laws. Sexy sex laws. <laughs> and not wow. so sexy sex laws. <laughs> well, put it like this. If you're finding what I'm talking about sexy, you you, you really have got to worry. Um, this is not... Uh, not the area of law that um, that most people find it comfortable talking about, because obviously when you're dealing with the law, you're dealing with people in unfortunate circumstances, pretty mm. much always. Uh, nobody who ends up in court actually ever wants to be there. Um, but uh, the law itself does, of course, throw up all sorts of fascinating and interesting tales that we can... Uh, with a greater or lesser degree of, of distance, both time and space, uh, be able to look back and laugh. Uh, as they, uh, What happened yesterday is a tragedy. What happened a century ago is a farce. Yeah. Um, so that's that's my view of the law. Mm. Um, so what kind of, like, just before we get into the podcasty stuff, so what kind of law do you specialize in? Well, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, master of none. I turn my hand to whatever whatever comes my way. Now, most of my practice has involved uh, criminal law. So um, a lot of that has been in done and dirty in the district court, uh, plying my trade uh, with um, all sorts of things from uh, from driving offences to um, uh, to to defending dogs. That was one of the more recent ones. And then I, I do have a slightly more exotic area of practice in the realms of uh, data protection. And um, then I do a bit of uh, child abuse work as well. Um, so that's a, that's slightly more uh, hard edged work um, at a slightly higher level. Um, so it, it, it just depends, to be honest. Uh, it depends what the person at the other end of the phone asks me to do. I'll do pretty much anything. So now in your free time, you're supplying your sexy radio voice to to different podcasts. <laughs> well, yes. I, you know, I have opinions will travel. Um, <laughs> it, it's one of those challenges, like when I when I started off my own podcast um, was, hmm, I might have a tr- trouble with getting content, content because where am I going to find any lawyers with opinions that they want to share with other people. All the lawyers. Uh, yeah, all the lawyers. So <laughs> I've never really had a huge problem with, you know, being able to get a guest, particularly last minute. There's always somebody who's willing to uh, to to get their views out there into the big bad world. Um, and also it's it's quite refreshing because normally uh, you find yourself constrained and only able to communicate ideas in an environment tied down to a, a courtroom or dealing with the client or whatever. But when you get into a podcasting environment or the radio environment, you can kind of relax a little bit. You can take the, take the burden of your your client or your responsibility to all the people off your shoulders, and you can just say, right, well, here's what I think. Here's what's going on, and yeah, you know, it gives you a good bit of good bit of fun. 
Yeah. So the the reason I asked you on the podcast was because... Is this about to be a surprise? You know, the reason I asked you on the podcast is no, not no, 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 no. <laughs> it was just, like, I, I like to give like a little bit of backstory uh, to like why I have my guests on, um, like what their, their kind of specialty is. But like you and I were, were talking about like sex and sex laws. And one of the things that you talked to me about was about how back in the day before we had like television and radio and like you know sexy voiced podcasts like ours <laughs> um the court reporting was very much en- like seen as entertainment so do you want to just tell well, us a little bit about that well court reporting uh, still is if you if for any listeners who watch judge judy um you'll know the court reporting can still be quite entertaining if i haven't watched judge rinder apparently he's even better uh, but there was a kind of 16th 17th century equivalent and indeed even if you look at the career of charles dickens charles dickens was a court reporter and that's mm. where he got the inspiration for a lot of his stories but court reporting was intended to sell the product. You wanted to get the the words onto the page and get people to buy the pages. So you had to make it as entertaining as possible. Now, that meant, particularly in the 16th and 17th century, you would get these very ribald uh, tales being told. And if any of you want to, any of the listeners want to go out and, you know, spend a bit of time instead of looking at, you know, here's some cute cats, go to a website called www.oldbillyonline.org and you will burn days of your life there. I obviously have. We'll we'll put some links in the show yeah, notes for, for some of Rory's favorite cases. Yeah, <laughs> you will find some fascinating stuff. But my favorite one of all of those um, was... Uh, and it it tells you a lot about this this story when it starts out with the facts of this tale are, are too heinous to be repeated on these pages. And then it proceeds to hint at the facts of the story all the way through its telling. Um, now, what happened in, in this case was uh, a woman was in her, in her bedchamber, uh, but the building was clearly not very well built. And there were holes in the wall. And uh, one of her neighbours was walking by and saw through one of these holes in the wall. Just happened to Happened to, see. to yeah. glance through. And before her eyes, she saw um, her neighbour um, and um, in something of a compromising position with a canine. And she was so shocked and appalled at what she saw that she immediately got her friend to come over and have a look too. And her friend went and got another friend. And eventually there was uh, quite the gathering outside (laughs) this woman's uh, bedroom, gazing in through the numerous uh, cracks in the wall uh, at her activities. Uh, Their moral outrage eventually reaching such a height they could do nothing other than go and find the Beadle, a local policeman or law enforcement official or whatever. And uh, she was the the, the woman. How how long was she boning uh, this dog or uh, letting uh, the dog uh, bone uh, her uh, that like this entire crowd, one person would grab another person who would grab another person? Well, well, we do know there were quite a few people there, but we don't know quite how long it took for their moral outrage to to demand that they do something about it. At at least 20 minutes. So they had I, to watch it for a good, just to make sure that that was what was happening. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be caught in flagrante delicto. Um, <laughs> so it, it it would be so embarrassing for everybody, the dog, etc. So they might have even politely waited until she finished, um, <laughs> until they got the uh, the local constable to to come and do what needed to be done. But um, either way, she was she was picked up and 
dragged off uh, to the cells and uh, eventually her trial came around. And so, sure enough, this evidence was presented. You know, some uh, good law-abiding citizen said, well, I saw her do this. And then another law-abiding citizen got up and said, I also saw her do this, and so on and so on. The woman um, protested. Um, with great vigor and said, look, I, none of this happened. And these people clearly have a vendetta against mm. me. Her husband, the, the husband of the, the woman in the bedchamber, uh, was... Not not the husband of the dog. Not the husband of the dog. <laughs> as far as I can tell, the dog was male um, from the hints that we ga- gather. But the, um, the, this, poor, the, the, this poor woman's husband then gets in the stand and says, these people are clearly doing it out of some vendetta. Mm. The judge unconvinced either way, decides there's only one thing for it, we need some further evidence. And they called the dog. So the dog was brought in as witness. And the dog was led into the into the courtroom and was led up to the accused and proceeded to make friendly advances. Uh, and anybody who owns a dog or has had any experience <laughs> of a dog which has not been fixed, as they say, mm. um, will know exactly what I mean. Uh, and this being sure and certain evidence for the jury. That but also she... that's that's nervous dog behavior as well. It's not just horny dog behavior if they're in a big crowd that they're not used to. I think, I, I, I don't, don't, don't know if they had an animal psychologist involved in no. the 17th century law courts. Um, that probably wasn't well assessed. But either way, the dog had uh, some degree of connection to this woman. <laughs> um, they specified it was a mongrel, by the way, not not any not a purebred dog. Because um, that that has any sort of standing. Apparently, it does. It's irrelevant in law reporting. And then you uh, and lo and behold, the jury were then properly convinced that she was indeed a bestialist, uh, and uh, she was uh, she she was duly convicted of her heinous crime with this dog. History does not recall what became of the dog thereafter. Uh, possibly went for some counselling or, or whatever. But uh, but that's how law that's how law was reported back in the day. And, and what and what was the woman's sentence? Death. Right. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there were basically uh, three types of sentence. There was, uh, there was, there was flogging of some sort. There was deportation, or there was death. You, you know, you're not talking about people who have any great, great sums of money at their disposal at this time. Mm. So you get, but you get all sorts of tales like this, and in the, in the, this marvelous resource. Um, you'd be far, hard pushed to find anything as entertaining being reported in the law reports as we have them now, which are all uh, very rarefied and scientific and proper uh, sort of document. But that's uh, very. Simple. Similar to what I was talking to um, Sarah Griffin. I don't think you, you've met Sarah Griffin. I have not. Um, she is a writer and I had her on a couple episodes back where we were talking about witches and witch hunts and how to like, you know, hunt witches and stuff. <laughs> um, but but like very, very similar where you can point to anyone and say anything about a woman, just say she is of low moral standing mm. and and off she goes to court. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, it's often said, you know, um, about, about the, you know, how terrible that the, um, the, the witch trials were and so mm. on. But got rid of the witches. <laughs> so 
I'm 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 not I'm not pushed on it as a as a major moral issue, um, but um, I, I haven't met a witch into my knowledge though, uh, so so maybe there's a bunch. Well, of apparently you're looking at one because Sarah went through a checklist of things that would presumably make me a witch, and um, I pre- I scored pretty highly wow. on that. I must try that out myself. I might discover I'm a witch. Otherwise, I, I think like, I think you're you're definitely a witch. I might have also teed myself up to be the victim of a witch hunt, quite literally being hunted by witches. Not that I've said <laughs> such terrible things about witches to any witches. Out there listening, I, honestly, I'm a nice person. He I'm loves sure witches. Witch. Some of his best I, friends are witches. I, absolutely. <laughs> uh, look at my witch over here, uh, as Donald Trump would say. Um, so, yeah, uh, no, I've got nothing against witches. I don't want to. I don't want to, to castigate anybody for regardless. Well, of we'll put a hex on you. You look like you're capable of it. Yeah. You're giving me those eyes. You can't see the evil eyes, listeners, but I've, I'm getting the evil eye right I've, now. I've got the cauldron in the other room. I'm good <laughs> I to thought go. I could smell something, something <laughs> funky going on in there. Um, but yeah, in terms of that, you know, the, the righteous indignation of the law and so on, um, the the great, great and shining example on the, on the sexual front is um, is a case, uh, Orr and Braun. Uh, that was a UK case. What you had was a group of uh, men engaged in sadomasochistic masochistic, uh, practices, uh, some of which were recorded. In the what, was it, what was the time period? Um, so we're talking 19, 1980s into the 1990s. Okay. Um, the, uh, the trial kind of went on because it went to Europe and whatever. But what they were, oh, this group of men um, were prosecuted for this, for the offence of um, of grievous bodily harm. Uh, for what they were doing to each other. And their defense, understandably enough, was, well, we all consented. Now, their activities mm. were at the upper end of the scale in terms of pseudo-masochistic activity. There, there were, it, it was at the level of torture. Mm. But they were all consenting. So it didn't, so that, to their mind, didn't, shouldn't have been, uh, shouldn't have been a problem. The House of, the, the, the House of Lords in the UK, now the UK Supreme Court, um, found against them on the basis that, well, really, you you can't consent to a level of harm that is above a fixed level. So there, you can consent to somebody punching you in the face. That's not a problem. But you can't consent to somebody, say, paralyzing you because mm. that's a really terrible thing. Um, well, can you consent to somebody temporarily paralyzing you? Well, that might be a bit easier. So it's it's a bit of a gray area. But a view has to be taken in the interest of public order and morality and all of these sorts of um, nifty words that judges get to deploy in the interest of their own moral compass um, in order to uh, in order to secure the conviction of this, this group of men. Now, that case went to Europe, and it was uh, they challenged it in the basis that they were they were having the right to a private life and a family life, and you know engage in whatever activities they wanted. They weren't harming anybody else, etc. And the European Court said, "Well, there has to be a line somewhere. Um, we accept that there has to be a line, and where that line is affixed is a matter for the the nation's courts. It's not up to us to decide." So the the UK court, in, in essence, was correct in its finding that. This went too far, but to my mind, what what makes this a really interesting case is if you consider something like body modification, tattoos, piercings, and so on, they are a much more common thing. Yeah. So somebody gets a tattoo, and um, it is a, it is a permanent scar on a person's body. And people do like scarification and as well. There's also scarification, and there's and um, there's branding. There are all kinds of all kinds of 
types of um, permanent, of permanent, modifi- permanent yeah. modification, uh, tongue splitting, all of that. You get that type of activity, but because it occurs in a context that's not sexual, it's perfectly acceptable. Mm. So if I were to say to somebody, oh, um, uh, oh, um, brand, branding is, is a good example. Oh, um, would you make a nice, pretty artistic brand on my arm so that I could have the symbol uh, branded onto me? And, you know, that would be cool. And the courts would, in theory, say, well, that's fine because loads of people have branded. Well, not loads, but quite a few people have done it. It's a type of body modification. It's fine. However, if, if, I, off on if I was if I was actually getting off on it, if it was providing some form of titillation for me, mm-hmm. I'm not saying whether it would or it wouldn't, um, but if it did, you'd have a situation where it would be a criminal offence mm. by the Oren de Brown standard. So there's an element of hypocrisy uh, that inevitably comes into play here, where some things are acceptable in some contexts and some things are unacceptable in other contexts. And I think one um, really good example of this as well, and this is in the UK as well, you probably know about this, um, the ban that they have on certain types of porn being made in the UK, whereby anything to do with um, kind of bondage, S&M, um, face-sitting, face-sitting and squirting. Mm. And, and, and the problem with that was a lot of that type of pornography was very much heavily showing um, depictions of female pleasure, of queer pleasure. Um, so there was this fantastic protest a couple of years ago when this, when these um, rules were being brought in, where they had a face sit-in, and, and loads of protesters like just showed up in front of. I think it was like the um, the it, ratings board or something. And they just had a face sit-in. Was it was it, um, that that chap, that chap Myers, the obscenity lawyer? Uh, he he blogs as obscenity. Lawyer. Miles Jackman or Jakeman? Yeah, yeah, Miles Jackman. You said potato. Um, the um, yeah, he's a, an absolute wonder on the on, on in the legal sphere um, mm. and really carrying a torch to some great liberal lawyers, the likes of um, John Mortimer and he uh, has a really great Twitter account as well, and we'll does. we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Everybody should be following Obscenity Lawyer. He's, <laughs> he's such an entertaining guy. Um, but yeah, the like that. Kind Kind of uh, that kind of prim and proper pearl clutching carry on uh, that you get in uh, in about about sex and sexuality, um, particularly regarding types of sexuality that you don't find acceptable. Mm. Said the fact that Orrin Brown that was uh, that was homosexual. If it was heterosexual, would it have been different? Well, it's a coin toss, but I would say there's a significant chance that it would be would be different. Yeah, um, there's still uh, that's and that's the morality of judges coming into play. On in a scenario involving involving people and their free choice to do what they want to do with their bodies. It's really interesting because in the in the states we have fifty states, and for the longest time, um, things like sodomy laws would have been. Um, dealt with state by state. So you have um, quite a lot of states like in the Bible Belt who still technically have sodomy laws um, on the books. But thanks to a Supreme Court case in 2003, Lawrence v. Texas, um, the the Supreme Court decided that that was unconstitutional to have sodomy laws because so often um, it came down against same-sex couples. Um even though there were there were some there were some states that like said like sodomy for anybody is yeah. like it, illegal, but like so many states had had 
laws on the books, sodomy laws on the books that were just focused on same-sex couples. So now you have um, quite a number of states that still have these sodomy laws, like technically on the books, but they're completely unenforceable because they've been deemed since 2003 to be unconstitutional. Yeah. Well, the the fact that uh, so that legislators, particularly in more conservative areas, would be afraid to be seen to decriminalize something, to remove something from the statute books, even though it is unconstitutional, mm. um, is indicative of uh, cowardice on the part of the government and it's not this is not an American a unique American phenomenon of course um, I, I, I know we were, we were probably going to talk about this later so we'll inevitably get onto it now um, the the that proud bugger in our midst uh, Senator David Norris and his uh, wonderful crusade regarding uh, buggery now uh, well, since sure we're on it, let's just talk about th- it yeah. now. Um, no, the thing about what happened uh, in Norris's case, now he brought this challenge to Irish law. Um, th- and this was in the seventies. Th- this is in the seventies, yeah. So um, what you uh, what you had was the Irish law was actually predating the Irish Constitution. So the Offences Against the Person Act 1961, and that created the offence of buggery. And then you had the uh, then you had the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1885, which criminalised gross indecency, mm. um, helpfully undefined. Um, and his claim was that these were repug- repugnant to the Constitution. Now, was it what, was it true that um, a lot of these laws against homosexuality didn't include? Um, same-sex women like it was it was more geared towards men it was very definitely geared towards men in terms of its conception now did it absolutely exclude did offenses of gross indecency involving women were they were they, um, were, were they out were mm. they impossible no no you could still be prosecuted but um i haven't been able to find any uh, example of it happening um, they just kept it vague it, enough to kind of include it. Yeah, uh, there was no. Uh, there's an apocryphal story about Victoria refusing to sign anything that would that would suggest that uh, women would do anything with women. Um, that's that's absolutely untrue. It's just uh, utterly unthinkable. But how a, a, a woman could sodomize another woman? Um, but thanks to uh, Pornhub, uh, we all know <laughs> exactly how that can be done. Um, and thank God for the internet. Uh, but anyway, um, what you you've got a, a few sort of elements to what David Norris was saying now. First of all, uh, Article 50 of the Irish Constitution says that all laws before the Irish Constitution came into existence were good laws unless they were repugnant to the Constitution. Then there's the right to privacy. Uh, which doesn't actually exist in the Irish Constitution, save in the context of a private family life. But the right to privacy does actually exist as an unenumerated right. Now, since the Constitution can't allow your allow the state to freely read your correspondence or look at medical records, y- you do have some form of privacy guaranteed under the Constitution. So Norris claimed that his right to privacy was being infringed. This unenumerated right to privacy was being infringed um, by the uh, was being infringed by the state in criminalising an activity which he might choose to engage in. Uh, where there, uh, uh, and so there was a conflict in the law um, uh, between the old laws, the pre-constitution laws, and the 1937 constitution. So these laws should be deemed unconstitutional. Now the Supreme Court weren't won over by the argument using and the same arguments that are going to inevitably be deployed in the context of, uh, 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 say, a Louisiana law criminalizing mm. uh, sodomy, um, the robust Christian nature of the state. And indeed, the Irish Constitution is a highly Christian document 
uh, it's uh, in all about um, uh, in the well, sight the, of God the and the preamble. And kind of didn't the the bishops sort of supervise the writing of it? Well, there um, between the operations of John Charles McQuaid, the uh, the Archbishop of Dublin at the time of the writing of the Constitution, and the um, and also the impact of certain. Um, certain jurists of the time, most notably uh, Gavin Duffy, uh, who went on to be on the Supreme Court bench, they were uh, extraordinarily conservative individuals, mm. um, very Catholic, and were uh, taking a lot of their inspiration in the authorship of the Constitution from constitutions that it, Republican constitutions, uh, the Constitution in France, and so on. But they were also determined to give it that um, that strong Christian foundation. Um, that they a nice saw Catholic a edge, a nice Catholic edge to it, <laughs> which came in, which which is which is still carried on to this day. Like you only need to need, need to look at the Eighth Amendment and so on to see that that is that is there defining our constitution still, and it's it's inescapable um, that our constitution is a Christian document, mm. and it, it some it, it it informs uh, all discussion of that document, um, and so it leads to certain prejudices. Now, the upside for David Norris uh, in his case was that he was. Um, that that he was able to go off to the European Court of Human Rights um, because he has a, a, a right to a private and family life under the uh, European Convention on Human Rights. Um, now, before that, um, the there had been another case, um, and that uh, that case was taken by a Northern Irishman whose name escapes me right now, um, and he um, uh, and and he said, "I'm I should be entitled to." to do whatever I want and it's that was in 1981 and uh, in 19 so he brought that so to the he, U- UK Supreme Court he, that was that went through the UK Supreme Court and then ultimately ended up in Europe in 1981 and they held for him that he should be allowed to do to put his penis or have penises put in his bottom if he so wished mm. um, and there was no way because there, there wasn't the requisite balancing act now what the what Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights does. So what's the requisite balancing act? So the balancing act is a, is an interesting thing. Now, Article 8 itself um, has these two parts. The first part is that everyone has the right to respect for the private and family life, their home and their correspondence. So that's the law set mm. out flat. The second part uh, of, uh, of that is that any interference um, with... Th- that privacy must be in accordance with law. So that's part one. And then part two is it must be necessary for one of a specific set of purposes. The purposes being national security, public safety, the economic well-being of the country, to prevent crime and disorder, the protection of health and morals, and sorry, the prevent- protection of health or morals, and that's been a very important distinction in a couple of cases, uh, and the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. So that's a balancing act that the states must engage in before they are able to violate your right to a private family life and the privacy of your home and your correspondence. Mm. And in, and the courts must carry out that weighing exercise and failure to carry it out um, uh, in an appropriate manner will render you, um, uh, will, will come fall foul of European law. And since this had already been decided, in essence, Norris was pushing an open door and uh, successfully had uh, successfully had those um, th- those offences declared to be contrary to his human rights, which was all well and good. Um, apart from the incredibly long time that it then took them to yeah. actually set about repealing the laws and um, to bring the rights of 
um, of homosexuals and homosexual couples into line with because those heterosexuals. Even even though like he brought it to the European Court of Human Rights and they favoured him in that, mm. um, it took Ireland a really long time to to actually. There were there were enact there, that there there were there, in essence it was simply in essence it was simply simply an appeal. Um, so there are it's simply a repeal. Um, so I'm not entirely sure of the exact date on which the exact date on which it was it was done. But it was of course a political hot potato. A lot of you know um, the. Uh, the the people from more conservative constituencies, um, people who would have been more interested in having the blessing blessing of the blessing of the bishop than the blessing of the um, of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, would have been very much against it because they wouldn't want to lose the election or be told that they can't um, can't get receive communion mm. because if you can't receive communion then you can't go to the funeral and if you can't go to the funeral you can't shake all the hands to get the votes in order to get elected the next time around. Um, that was how Irish politics was done and to a certain extent might still be done today. I, I think it's also important to um, point out the fact that David Norris's lawyer who, who took this case for him um, is our very like for Irish or non-Irish listeners um, um, was Mary Robinson our very first female president, and uh, yeah, an absolutely astounding woman. Uh, she went on to even greater things than being president. She mm. went on to be. She's going to save the world, Rory. She is. She's the. You're, she. She was the uh, high commissioner for refugees um, in uh, in in the United Nations, um, which is an amazing posting to get. Uh, and then uh, she has also established the Mary Robinson Foundation, which does an awful lot of environmental work. So she. She's, She's out there strings. fighting climate change, and yeah, she, there there is nothing this woman cannot do. Mary, um, please come on my show. I love you. <laughs> She's so so wonderful. If you got her on the show, I would I, I I would be embarrassed to say I was ever on your show because <laughs> she is so such a wonderful, wonderful person. I don't deserve to be in her presence. Only at a very lar- large distance, uh, sort of uh, gazing lovingly. Uh, I I actually I, I have friends that I go for coffee with every now and then, and without a doubt. Every time we go for coffee, the the top of conversation always somehow spins to Mary Robinson, and just <laughs> isn't she just great? <laughs> well, what the Irish, what the non-Irish listeners probably won't know about either it was the tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, Shauna, I don't even you you probably never even saw the tapestry in your no. time. There was on uh, a shop window on Dame Street uh, a beautiful um, uh, rug. Uh, huge. It must have been, it must have been like two meters by three meters or whatever. It was a massive piece of work, um, uh, embroidered with the face of Mary Robinson. Get me that rug. It sat, there, <laughs> it sat there gazing out lovingly at the people uh, of Dame Street for a very long time. It's sadly gone because the shop itself is gone as well. Um, I wonder whatever became of it. Uh, anybody out there knows what happened to that rug? I'm sure somebody bought it. <laughs> um, it, it's it's bound to be in someone's home. Yeah, yeah. She's, maybe it's in David Norris's home. Uh, maybe, oh, maybe how, how amazing would that be? Fabulous, although he wouldn't want to walk all over Mary Robinson. You'd have to. No, have a you'd have to wall. hang it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she she really did reform Ireland in in, in spectacular ways. Mm. Um, she made the Irish presidency in, into a very a much more political office than it had been before. Um, and uh, she was indicative the first first chink in the armor of the more 
uh, of the, the conservative strand of Irish politics because indeed it was supposed to be Brian Lennon Sr. who was meant to win that election. Everybody had said so. Um, but sure enough, uh, Mary inspired people in, in, her, in her informed and calm way mm. that she that she has um, an ability to communicate so clearly that she was able to epitomize the direction in which Ireland went hoped to go of course there was there were great plans for Brian Lennon senior to move into uh, into Oros Nocturon as the residence of the president and um uh, that would be once he was elected. So they massively increased the uh, presidential budget and they redid the house and everything, only for him to not win the election and for Mary Robinson to end up there instead, um, which upset quite a few people um, in the Fianna Fáil party ranks. <laughs> uh, they were most displeased that the electorate got it wrong. Uh, but she did wonderful, it was then able to do wonderful things with her huge budget and her beautiful new house. Yes. Uh, and more power to her for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, need more, we need more like her. We do still have a few people uh, out there, uh, out there flying the flag, um, but uh, we w- we will never have another Mary Robinson. She's unique. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to sex laws. Now that we've had our yeah, I, I our, like our Mary Robinson love in, yeah, I'm going to sound like sound like I've, I've got a bit of a thing for Mary Robinson, which let's we, all, we all do. do. We uh, all do. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, in relation to sex, like there's a there's a question that keeps coming up, uh, in sex and the law, and the question is always the same: what about consent? Yeah, like that's a big issue for everybody. Um, consent uh, still to this day, though possibly in a few days this could be out of date. So watch this space. Um, consent doesn't have a definition. It's mm. important to say that. It, it it hasn't been defined. It might be in a few days, but it hasn't been defined yet. Um, A common sense understanding has always been brought to consent. Now, it's obviously a a thorny issue. Uh, Do you you think the reason, um, or because we we don't have a definition of consent, that that's that's possibly why we have so few convictions? Well, uh, no, I don't, actually. Um, The thing about the common sense approach to an idea like consent is that do you think this person consented to it or not? If you get bogged down in putting definitions to juries, and I'll just go in here to tell you about what the proposed law reform is. The proposed law reform introduces a definition of sex, um, which is a person consents or sorry, definition of consent. Um, a person consents to sex uh, to a sexual act if he or she freely and voluntarily agrees to engage in that act. Now, my question is, how much does the statement he or she freely and voluntarily agrees to engage in that act add to our understanding of consent? It's a definition. Okay, that's fine. Now we have to work out what the word freely means, what the word voluntarily means what the word agrees is. Mm. These are also complicated terms. They're, they're not straightforward. And, you know, did she agree? What constitutes agreement? Does it have to be in writing? Can it be given verbally? Can it given, be given by a nod? You know, once, you, once you're into that question of communication, you get down into these really parsed, fine-grained questions when you should actually be looking at the big picture. The jury sat there, heard the evidence, they understand what the word consent means. They don't need it explained to them. They can just listen to what's being said. Mm. And say, uh, doesn't sound like she agreed to it. Or, yes, it sounds like he agreed to it. Or whatever, you know? But the, I, I think, the, like, so so often, I, I just find it, like, so upsetting, like, here in Ireland and 
back home in the States, I'm constantly bombarded with these stories of women who went through horrific traumas um and it just seems so obvious to everyone like yes this person was indeed raped and and so often and so there's like so few convictions um like such a small percentage of um of like rape um accusations actually go to trial and then an incredibly small number of those end up in convictions because people think that women lie well what I would say about that is, um, just in the context of defining consent, mm. um, first of all, adding uh, more words to the law isn't actually going to change that. Mm. If you've now got a definition of consent, okay. That's it, like, fine. are you saying it's like if you have a, a you have a strict definition of consent that that makes it easier for people to weasel out of no, it? No, no. Uh, all that I'm saying is that it doesn't actually change anything. Okay. Um, you define it, okay. But consent still has to be proven. We now have a definition of what consent is. That's fine. Mm. Um, and you can put the question to the jury, does she consent to this? And by consent, we mean, did she freely and voluntarily agree to engage in this act? Now, I would suggest that most jurors, and indeed in the context of both a case being made for the prosecution and a case being made for the defence and the judge when they are giving their charge to the jury, would all up to now have used language much akin to that. That is pretty much what they said. What do we mean by consent? We mean, did she freely and voluntarily agree to engage in this act? That's the kind of language that would have been employed in the courtroom before the jury when they've heard the evidence anyway. Mm. So is it going to add very much? I don't think so. What I do think would make a palpable difference to the rate of... to, to the rate of of convictions would be the understand it would be an increased understanding of the nature of the process of the trial now why would that make a difference why would the process result in more more convictions well there's a great mystery that surrounds the law um people see the wigs and the gowns and they see the judge sitting out there looking very severe and it's a very intimidating environment genuinely is for everybody mm. going in nobody wants to be there it's it's terrible um and then but, you also have the victim having then, to face the perpetrator yeah and then uh, yeah and then you've got the added uh, ag- aggravation of the and I'm very strict about my language here um I I don't talk about I don't talk about victims and perpetrators mm. I talk about complainants and accused now the reason I do that is because I'm very old fashioned I'm old fashioned in this respect a person is a victim once a, a person is a victim once a crime has been proven. Okay. A person is a complainant before the crime has been proven. They are the person making the complaint of the crime. A person is accused until they've been convicted. Once they are convicted, they are the criminal. Okay. You know, they are the perpetrator. In the courtroom environment, you've got it's incredibly oppressive. It's very difficult, and certainly efforts are made to make it easier. But if there was a a proper system whereby it was understood that the interests of the the complainant were given equal weight to the interests of the prosecution mm. and the interests of the defense then we would have a very different different environment in the courtroom so for example if you have the um the prosecution it's their job to be unbiased it is their job to guide the the jury through the evidence as the as the state 
believes it to be, and to present it fairly and accurately. It is the defence's job to then present, to then show that what of that evidence is good and reliable or what isn't reliable. And then you have, then what you don't have, the gap that exists there, is on the complainant's side. Now, I am not suggesting for one moment that there should be another person akin to the defence seeking, no matter what, that the person be convicted doing basically the, the, the mirror image of the defence's job, which is very different to the prosecution's job. But trying to, but rather what their job is to do is not to, nothing to do with the outcome of the trial itself, but rather there specifically to protect the interests of the complainant. Mm. Now, that could be something as minor as being able to make an application to say, I believe that this questioning has gone too far, Judge. I think we need a break. Or I believe so, like a counselor so or domestic violence. Exactly, and it, and if it was somebody of equal standing to the prosecution and the defence, mm. somebody there who who had sat down and got to know this, com- complaint, just a, a it, third, a, a third party, a third, in essence, a third legal team in there mm. who was there not to convince the jury of one thing or another, but just to make sure that in all of this procedure, and at any time somebody could intervene. If they were, if they were off a view that it was getting too much for this one complainant, and having knowing that that person was there to do that particular job, and knowing that that person could then, if they felt under too much pressure, say, I- "I'm sorry, judge, I need a moment," and they can call over their representative and say, "Oh, could you, you know, tell me what, you know, okay, what's going on here? You know, why, why it is?" And you can, you know, help them through the process. I'm not saying guide them in their evidence, but help them get through that experience. And see them right the way through to the end, regardless of the outcome, because they're not their interest in the outcome. They're interested in the well-being of the um, of the of, of the complainant. Mm. Then you'd have a very different environment in the courtroom. There would also be somebody who's, who'd be there to stand up and say, "Well, I'm sorry. No, I think that this that this, given my knowledge of my client, I can tell you that this this line of questioning is uh, is likely to cause damage." And I ask that you know you tone down your questions or whatever that sort of thing. Do we have done. any examples of this worldwide? Are there any countries that are currently doing this, well, or states that are currently doing this? It it works in other systems now. Nowhere's doing anything quite like that, but our our system is is different to what you see in most places because we've got an adversarial system. It's a kind of them and us mm. environment in which the complainant gets completely left out. So the state presents its case, the defence presents their case, and that's that. Everybody just, then the jury makes a decision, end off. Now, what you have in other countries is uh, not an adversarial system, but an, uh, an inquisitorial system where the judge is tasked with learning about the case. They're not just there to parse the evidence. They're mm. there to they're there to understand, to learn from the witnesses, to be guided through the law, to investigate it themselves, to ask their own questions, and to satisfy themselves of particular elements of the case, um, and potentially to say, okay, everybody, I want to know about this. I want you to go away and come back and tell me about the following. Now, that's what happens in other countries, which is a much easier environment to prosecute sexual offences, because... There isn't a them and us mm. environment. There are numerous parties with numerous different interests, and they're able to talk through it much more ably than the one side stands up, does their bit, the other side stands up and does their bit, and the complainant is completely alienated. 
So that's what I would suggest as a, as a kind of compromise, given that our system isn't going to change, we will still have the adversarial system. We need something that's going to be more understandable, more relatable. Uh, and uh, in essence, a friendly face yeah. um, that is going to that is going to be there and can actually vindicate the rights of a complainant, and not the victim. The victim can have their day in court in you know in, through civil action or whatever, but vindicate the rights of a complainant. Because I'm, I firmly believe that while you know, people say, "Oh, what about victims' rights?" Victims have rights once they're victims. Complainants don't have rights, and I think complainants should have rights, but I don't think that. Complainants should have. A ve- I don't think believe complainants have a vested interest in the outcome of the trial itself. Mm. I think that they are they they have rights insofar as it is in the state's interest that offences be prosecuted. And if one of the costs of the state of the of an offence being prosecuted is that some person needs to be looked after a little bit better yeah. during that process, then the state should be doing that, and yeah. that should be part of the process. So that's that's my view. Yeah, um, I can I completely agree. Okay, I wanna I wanna bring it back a little bit um, because we were talking about David Norris and taking mm. his case um, and doing it on a, a right to privacy basis. So let's let's go back in our our sexual <laughs> laws time machine <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about um, Roe v. Wade. Oh yeah. Well, no. Look, I'm not an not an American lawyer. <laughs> uh, so um, what? Well, let, comes, let, let's well, talk about it through okay. through an Irish lens. You have Roe v. Wade, which mm. guaranteed people the the right to privacy yeah. um, when it comes to sexual health, reproductive uh, rights, reproductive exactly. rights. Yeah. Um, let's just mm. put it plainly, abortion. Mm. And then soon after that, um, now that was in the states, and then just a little while after that, we have the Eighth Amendment here in in Ireland. So for our non Irish listeners, I'm sure. Our Irish listeners are probably sick and tired of hearing about the Eighth Amendment, but just for our non-Irish listeners, can you please give us a very brief um, explanation of what the Eighth Amendment was? So the Eighth Amendment is the, the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution um, was an amendment introduced for the purposes of answering a very simple question. Really, is um, can you have? Um, an abortion in Ireland, and if so, on what basis? Now, there was a black hole in the law in Ireland where abortion uh, was concerned. Um, there was certainly a right to life, then there was the um, rights of the mother, and so on. All of this kind of mess. What the Eighth Amendment did was it put to the people uh, an, a, a, a solution to this problem, supposedly. And the Eighth Amendment um, places on an equal footing the right to life of the mother and the unborn child. The state shall uh, shall give adequate weight to the right to life of the equal value to the right to life of the unborn and the mother. Now, that, of course, didn't mention the word abortion. And when you don't grasp the nettle fully, you are in trouble. Mm. Because now we end up in a situation where a balancing act happens. It's incredibly well, vague. The, it's the incredibly wording. vague. Like it's it's one line. So, yeah. So you've got this absolute unknown entity of you know what is this equal weighting? What is you know what do you mean by the unborn exactly? You know, are, are we talking are we talking about the frozen fetus? Are we talking about you know where do we go with this? And um, so you end up with all of these other cases that follow on, including the most famous ones, the the um, the, the the cases relating to suicide. Um, 
and there were sev- several of these actually, and they, um, where what happens if somebody is about to kill themselves because they're pregnant and carrying out a termination will save their life. Well, the the it was argued by, amongst others, uh, Professor William Benchy prior to that referendum that that would not be a consequence. And to get back to Mary Robinson, she said, well, if you're if somebody's going to kill themselves because they're pregnant, then this does come into it because this violates the right to life. Mm. Uh, because this is their this is the mother's right to life here that we're talking about. Um, Professor Benchy said no. Mary Robinson said yes. Mary and Robinson she actually was pre- right. she actually predicted a few cases. Yeah, oh, the, she, like, did, she just, did. Yeah, just like potential was, cases, and then they ended about, up being true. Uh, what about what about travel? Was another one that she. Yeah. Uh, and then she said, well, and then there was the que- question of abortion information, which was mm. another issue. So. There were Which we won in was it ninety four? Yeah, uh, the uh, right to no, information. The the right to abortion information that was uh, well. There were there were a string again a string of cases. There was Buck v. Grogan and as uh, um, um, I I think that eventually didn't that yeah it was ninety four I think. Well, my memory's failing me now. I'm not good on dates. Um, so what 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 happened with what happened there was you had you know could people learn about uh, abortion? They ended up having to have, have another referendum about whether people could gain abortion information, which was all completely circumvented by somebody announcing the names of all these uh, abortion clinics and. In, in the UK that they could and giving out their names and phone numbers but doing it under dual privilege so they were immune so that solved that issue mm. uh, in a very Irish way now we then have so we then this litany of qu- cases that start to crop up all because of this Eighth Amendment right enough they were all predictable at the time and then you get the more recent ones the case of Savita Halapanavar that was uh, particularly tragic um, but then there's, there, there have been other cases. Miss Y was another. Uh, there was a case of a, a woman who, um, who was uh, who arrived um, severely uh, mentally disturbed. Um, had been uh, from all apparent all apparent evidence, she'd been the victim of rape. She requested an abortion. She was refused because she was under the care of the state. She was forced to carry the child to term. She had the child. Uh, devastating consequences. All of which, due to the prevarication of the government and the actions of the, and the actions of the actions in the courts, could have been dealt with far far easier by just carrying out the termination because she was clearly going incapable of surviving psychologically surviving mm. the process that she was put through. So instead, they carried out a, a cesarean section as as soon as it was viable to do so. Um, so they'd rather she carry the child and then rip it out of her womb um, than take the risk of you know carrying out a very early term abortion yeah and putting her through that that was the that was the decision and that's uh, utterly horrific um on a just on a on a human level the idea that you would do that that you put a woman through that who's already been through so much but anyway so we then have the, the this eighth amendment which is still with us to this day um and which despite uh, the introduction of the protection of life during pregnancy bill which never forget criminalizes a woman having an abortion and criminalizes somebody assisting having an abortion what exactly constitutes assisting having an abortion is unknown but assisting somebody so you holding her hand and taking her to the airport for example would be could the airport technically be liable well this was the question how many how many times should Ryanair be prosecuted for assisting an abortion that's that's the big question how many times should um, should Irish ferries be prosecuted for assisting an abortion Um, there's the the breadth of this law now some that's okay slightly absurd argument 
But would be paying for your friend's flight, would that constitute assisting an abortion? I think it would. Mm. Lending them your credit card because they don't have the ready cash, I think that would constitute assisting an abortion. So you can't really see where this, where any of this ends. The only way to actually end any of this stuff, and I, I'm, I've got a very radical view on the Irish constitution, um, the only way you can solve this and many other problems is get rid of it. I have no faith in the Irish Constitution as it is, as it stands as a legal document. It has only stood the test of time. That's, a, that's a very um, controversial opinion to have with an accent like yours. <laughs> well, I, I know. Um, uh, being, uh, as, as those uh, who are not from these islands will not be aware, uh, I am from Northern Ireland. Uh, I, I just, just, just to prove it, I can tell you I'm from Northern Ireland. Uh, if that makes you feel any more comfortable, sound sound a bit more like I'm in uh, in the name of the Father now. So coming over here, making fun of our constitution. <laughs> Though <laughs> I'm like, I'm one to talk yeah, with my I American know. accent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so if, uh, at least you have a Supreme Court that decides things like Roe v. Wade. I'm very jealous. <laughs> no, what we, what we have is an uh, is an old fashioned document that's no longer fit for purpose. You've got concepts like the the, the woman's place in the home and uh, and the Eighth Amendment, and you've got um and and this really absurd uh, outrage of. Uh, um, of a balancing act, uh, talk about these balancing acts, but the idea that um, that people shall have their uh, right to right to liberty and free expression and so on protected within public order and morality, yeah, which is particularly intimidating. The European view on this is quite different. It's a case called Handyside, um, which says which does not require that balancing act, but rather uh, a wonderful term. You enjoy the right to offend, shock. And disturb. I, I love those words. Um, so, so, uh, so you you can offend, shock, and disturb wherever you like in Europe, as long as you don't do it in Ireland. That's yeah. why that's why Alan Shatter's book was uh, was banned. <laughs> I actually um, have a I have a copy of that. Oh, yeah, dirty. Laura. Yeah. Oh wow! I've never I've never gotten around to around. Oh to my gosh! It. So, um, I the the week that I got my citizenship. Alan Shatter was our justice minister, so he was um, he was sort of the the MC, as if you will, for the for the event for like <laughs> he was the MC for the citizenship ceremony. So that week, when he like I got my citizenship, um, it came out in the news that he had this like romance novel that he had written back in like 1989. And Actually, I was amazing. just like, oh, my God, that's the guy. I have to go get that book. And it's so funny because, like, as you probably know, Alan Shatter is a family law um, person. Um, he quite literally wrote the book on family law. He, like, family yeah, law. literally. Yeah. Um, and Laura reads like a family law novel almost like it's it's incredibly like i've never seen more boring sex scenes <laughs> than in this book <laughs> it's, 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 it's written like a law document uh, as you, as you might, might suggest it's it, it's 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 more of a two-hand read than a one-hand read is oh that what you're telling us? yeah yeah very much so yeah. um well i i'm i'm not going to judge a book that i haven't written um uh, sorry um, alan stick to uh, your day job well, well, <laughs> Uh, he's he's back being a solicitor. This is he's no longer our minister for justice or indeed a TD anymore. But um, what uh, what I do know of that book is that he even he was in some ways prescient in dealing with the abortion issue in that book. Yeah. So he he was he was perfectly willing to tackle those questions. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to use this opportunity now that you've got me here and I get in the airways because normally I'm on the other side of the other side of the microphone. I just wanted to say something about the consent. 
concept. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, to, I know we've we've covered that covered that quite well, but uh, I think that the concept of consent um, is an unnecessarily sticky one. Um, I don't think that that is where the law should be pushing itself towards. You know, it's like did a person consent? The circumstances under which they could or could not consent. All of this stuff that's coming up that's been introduced in a, in, in a reform to the Criminal Law Sexual Offences Bill 2015 which is now, um, which should be ratified in the next short while. But I disagree with the approach. I actually think that the relevant question, and this comes to a question not just of rape victims and not just a question of um, um, uh, people um, uh, operating under circumstances of duress, but actually more broadly in people uh, suffering from mental disability um, and some some inability to, to perform the, these functions and um, to function ordinarily, uh, as we might put it. Um, somewhat crassly, maybe what we should be should be looking at is to see uh, the circumstances of the event, and to work out from the circumstances, are they exploitative? Because the act of rape and the act of sexual abuse, uh, they are exploitative by nature. And surely the question is not whether the person consented or not, or whether the person had capacity to consent or not, but whether the sexual intercourse or whatever sexual act it was occurred under circumstances of exploitation. Mm. And that, while obviously I can I, I, I can see the other side coming you know, coming there, at that, also, which, is, which which involves which involves a huge question about so there's um, also tricky situations with regards to things like ability whether um if it's a physical disability or a mental disability whether or not those people can consent because oftentimes we we infantilize people or asexualize people that we we shouldn't be asexualizing yeah and what one of the the shocking things about it is that in Ireland we kind of have an on off switch and mm. um, this idea that you uh, this is changing a little but the, the on the one hand you have a you have a person who has capacity. And on the other hand, you have a person who doesn't have capacity. And you're either one or the other. You can't be anywhere in between. There's no such thing as assisted... Well, there is no assisted decision-making in the context of making wills or um, engaging in financial contracts. Assisted assisted decision-making. It's becoming an important thing. But it doesn't exist in the sexual context. doesn't exist in the marital context. People just can't do it. Mm. And it's that... It's that hard line that exists that I think is likely to cause great hurt to people under um, suffering from a mental disability. Um, they are deprived of leading full lives because it's apparently beyond the ingenuity of mankind to come up with a way of making sure that they can have a relationship and be safe. That's absurd. What we can do is we can make sure that the person isn't being exploited. And if we protect a person from exploitation, then they will, they should, and they have every right to engage in the fullness of life, and that includes sexual activities. Mm. So, that's that's that, that's my view on that. And it, it it takes away the question of consent if you can just prove that somebody did something under circumstances that was exploitative, then that is sufficient as a sexual offence, and that 
people get lashed onto the word rape, people get onto the lashed onto words like consent. But I think anybody engaging in exploitative in sex in an exploitative manner is as as guilty of an offence as anybody else. Um, and we see that in uh, child pornography cases. That's exploitative. They might have no connection to the to the victim of the child pornography, um, but they do. But it is exploitative. Mm. So it should surely that should surely be our focus. And that's the way I would like to see the law going, um, rather than rather than getting bogged down in questions of rape and consent and so on. Yeah, um, slightly controversial. Uh, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, I I, I think. For me, it, it's sort of a, like you said, it's a, it's a language thing. And I and I wouldn't want to, while I, I completely agree with you that like we should be looking at it, w- whether or not it should be exploitative, I'm, I'm worried that we're kind of, um, if we use just the word exploitative, does it then take away from instances where violence has occurred. Exploitative circumstances can occur in all sorts of ways. Mm. Um, you can have emotionally exploitative scenario, scenarios. Um, the, for for example, um, when uh, there, there used to be the old rule of um, a conjugal duty of a wife yeah. uh, to provide the necessary orifices for the enjoyment of her husband. Well, the... Um, that that gave rise to exploitative relationships, and you can have psychologically exploitative, emotionally exploitative, um, as well as physically exploitative relationships. Mm. You can have relationships of dependence and power play that are of such a kind that a person could be said to be deprived of their free will. Now that might sound some way in some way paternalistic, but I'd rather have a paternalism that gives rise to that gives rise to a greater level of successful and effective prosecutions of what things that ought to be crimes rather than failing to prosecute things that actually are crimes already mm. but um that's uh, as i say slightly controversial view um now the the question is is very gender fraught though um and you get ideas like you know about Women engaging in sex are never prosecuted are never prosecuted for rape, but men engaging in sex are prosecuted for rape. Um, and that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, this idea that, and I, I, I think it makes it um, particularly difficult. I'm going to use your language here for for complainants, um, because oftentimes when we think of cases of rape or sexual exploitation, we're thinking of women, um, and there. I think it's it's very difficult for like it's incredibly difficult for um, women to come forward with uh, with their uh, cases, but also probably almost even more so for men because there's this idea that men can't be raped, or in the cases of trans people, like those groups of people just would oftentimes feel that there there will be no justice for them um, equally, if not more so than than women. Well, I I think that that's that's most definitely the case. Um, it's one of those things, though, that people um, can't expect the world from the law. Um, you um, you go to court seeking law, not justice, is one of the old sayings. Um, w- 
when it comes to matters like these, where you're talking about law enforcement, or when you're talking about um, what uh, you know, what rights are being better vindicated, or who's being better protected, um, these are actually societal jobs um, to make sure that the people that any person who suffers as a, uh, uh, as a victim of an offence or any person making a complaint to the Gardaí uh, that an offence has been committed against them should not in any way on the basis of any ground of discrimination um, feel intimidated or wary of the activities of, uh, of the, the reaction of the state agency charged with that role. But that's all about communication. And the Gardaí, and I don't often have very nice things to say about the Gardaí, but in this one respect, I will say they have done brilliantly. They have got very adaptable, very well-trained units that do listen to what people have said their job is to deal with these specialist cases, the unusual, the the. the um, the, the sex worker who's raped during the context of their work, the uh, trans person who's uh, who's raped. They, you know, they have specialists who work in these scenarios. Now, do they have enough specialists? No, they don't. Do they? Will they um, ever be able to address every case adequately? No, they won't. We should expect them to, but they they won't. That's the nature of humanity. I'm afraid. They, uh, but. There is an awakening happening, and I think that the world is becoming more aware. Certainly, Ireland is becoming more more aware of the diversity of people, the diversity of interests, the diversity of needs of the members of society. And with that gradual awareness is becoming a responsiveness of the state agencies, particularly the Gardaí, but also the court service and um, uh, and counselling services and and education as well. You know, they're becoming more responsive to these needs. These increasingly niche, unusual, difficult, complicated, but very important needs that people that individuals experience. Mm. And I think that we're, I think that we are actually going the right going the right direction. It's just never going to be there fast enough. And that's sad. But uh, that re- it just requires an alertness, a responsiveness and awareness on the part of the of the state in order to do it properly. Mm. I think the last thing I want to ask you is are there any laws going forward that um, will be enacted or have currently been enacted that you see as being very positive and hopeful to protect people sexually? Well, um, sexually, there's obviously the the, the recent amendment uh, to Section 9 of the uh, Criminal Justice Sexual Offences Bill. Um, so that was just introduced in the last two weeks, um, which not just... Not but only, it is not, quite controversial, Bill. It's, only I'm saying it's controversial, to be honest. Uh, I'm just I'm, I'm just sort of converging <laughs> from the side going, oh, I'm not so sure. What's interesting about it, what's interesting about it is that... Um, uh, sorry, that aspect of it, yes, it is a very controversial bill. It's just this one section that I'm fixating on that nobody else seems to think is controversial than I do. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, One of the things that it does to is that it it actually sets out a list of circumstances which will be considered to give rise to a lack of consent so um it does say if you are in do- if you are at a certain level of intoxication if you are at if you are unable to if you are unresponsive if you are whatever it that it sets out those very clear black and white and you can and lawyers can say this is that situation 
Therefore, this is a crime. And that is a very positive step. But it also leaves open the possibility of the big ones that aren't in the list, yeah. which is which is a, a, a very welcome bit of subtlety. So that's one good thing that's uh, that has been that has been introduced or that that will become law. Um, obviously, there are laws in relation to prostitution, which I I can't say I'm an authority on the issue of mm. prostitution, so I don't know. Um, but I think that they are potentially a backward step. I think that the more you criminalize something, the more dangerous you make it. Uh, that's been proven with drugs. It's been proven with guns. Um, the the point the point is to legalize and regulate. Obviously, we don't want guns in everybody's pockets, but you can have a gun in Ireland. You just need to tick a lot of boxes to get one. I you have like I have so much um, that I want to say about the um, about the sex work yeah, law, uh, I, like I, aspect I gotta, of it. I gotta but hold we're my like, hands up and say I'm I'm not I'm not an expert. We're I just totally totally out of time. Yeah. So we'll have to I'll have to get another guest expert in um, to talk about that because it is something that I really want to cover on this podcast. But sadly, we are out of time. Um, so I want to thank Rory for coming in and tell, talking to us about sex laws. I feel like we, I should have you in again because I there's just so much that we wanted to cover, and you came in with such a wealth of like case studies that I like <laughs> that we didn't get to cover. I didn't want to turn it into a law lecture though because you know that would get really well, boring. For I'm not going to lie; you kind of already did, but that's yeah, that's totally okay. okay. <laughs> so um, Rory, thank you so much for coming in, and we will have you back. In again, I'm it was sure. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on, Sean. Thanks so much to Rory Trainer for coming in and giving us that law lesson, and a special thanks to Mary Robinson just for being Mary Robinson and nothing short of a superhero. Our sexual history is produced by Alan Bennett with music by Shane O'Sullivan and artwork by Sheena Flynn. We're recording this on Valentine's Day, so if you love our sexual history and all our other podcasts in the Headstuff family, please consider sending us a Valentine in the form of subscribing, rating, and commenting. And if you're feeling especially amorous, you can donate to our Patreon to help Headstuff pay us and continue to publish quality, thought-provoking articles and podcasts. One that you might like to give a listen to is our brand new show, Personality Bingo with Tom Morin. 60 balls, 60 minutes, 60 questions. In those 60 minutes, Tom rolls his 13 euro Argus bot bingo ball machine and asks his guests the corresponding question to that number ball. At the beginning of the show, the guests receive six numbers and if their six balls are drawn, they get to pick a question to ask Tom and he has to give a totally honest answer. The first episode is out now with guest Davey Riley and I cannot wait to listen to this when I'm done recording here. That's it for now. We'll catch you again next month. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.